Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm so glad that you're joining us today. Today I'm joined by Dr. Brad Simpson to be discussing spine manipulation and thoracic manipulation especially. Brad has actually done a fellowship in manual therapy and also has a orthopedic clinical specialty and he has a ton of additional training and work put into understanding spine manipulation and he's also developed a tool to help you with thoracic spine manipulation called the TMT. You can find that and check it out below in the description. There's a link right to it there. Before we get to this episode though, I do want to give a quick plug. I am still looking for additional sponsors for upcoming podcast episodes. So if you are a business owner or company and you are interested in sponsoring the podcast or just a specific episode, please feel free to reach out to me. If you want to support the podcast but don't want to sponsor an episode, check out the links below, whether that be an affiliate link or setting up a monthly donation so we can continue to make future episodes happen. Brad, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you on today, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. So for people who aren't familiar with you personally or the thoracic manipulation tool, um, so would you mind filling them in a bit about who you are and everything that you do and all? Yeah, so I'm an outpatient physical therapist uh, since 2005. I've worked in outpatients my entire career. Uh, currently direct a couple of different PT practices, one for conservative knee rehab uh, here in Oregon, Bellevue and Tempe a digital platform, uh, physical therapy, uh, and overall healthcare management of chronic pain patients uh, company that's going to be launching hopefully later on this year. It'll be a telemedicine uh, platform and then uh, start my own PT company here soon. So finally jumping into that venture. So Yeah, for sure. You're a busy guy, man. Sounds like you really do it all. And we we're talking a little bit before we started this podcast about you know, your connection with one of my great uh, past guests there, Brett Windsor, and you guys both share a love and passion for manual therapy and joint manipulation and all these great things. For people who might not be familiar with the term manual therapy or joint manipulation or stuff, let's just start broad. What exactly is manual therapy and what all does it entail? It's another way to get things moving. You know, is a good way of putting it. There's a lot of ways of doing the exact same thing. Manual therapy is one way. You know, I used to think that my hands were really solving a problem, you know, and now I use them kind of as a diagnostic tool more than anything. You know, if I'm able to help get something moving uh, fairly quickly, the likelihood in my mind of that person being able to get that motion themselves and maintain it over time is really high, you know, and I've even gone to as far as saying, if I can't get something moving uh, very quickly, uh, the likelihood of them being able to get that motion over time is still very high, but it may just take more time. You know, so I use manual therapy as a diagnostic, you know, more than anything. Uh, mobilization, uh, joint mobilization, soft tissue work, uh, deep tissue work, manipulation, you know, those are all just different ways of, you know, just getting the body moving. Right, right. And I love how you said you use it as a diagnostic tool. I've been doing the same thing myself is, you know, when people come in for your first eval, 
I like to try and put hands on them and see, hey, can I make a difference here? Because if I can improve something in a matter of minutes, then I can probably make a whole program based off of what I just did with my hands to, you know, one, give us more movement. So WD-40 where we need it. And two, give us duct tape and strength and stability where we need it. So I definitely agree in the power that manual therapy can bring. And I definitely think that it's the kind of thing that it takes a lot of practice to get good at. You know, you're not just going to go in and be able to, you know, manipulate someone's thoracic spine the first time you do it, at least correctly anyways, I'll say. Yeah, it, it takes years of practice uh, to be able to hone in not only how to manipulate, you know, that there's the term you can teach a monkey to manipulate, but you can't teach a monkey who to manipulate, you know, and that's where it takes a lot of courses, I think, and mentorship and being able to learn uh, who you should be putting your hands on, as well as a lot of practice with success and failure. You know, you're, you're going to quickly learn the spines that, yeah, that's not going to quite work you know, uh, trying to manipulate these spines, you know, or the people that end up having an adverse response of just more pain or uh, irritability, you know, after you put your hands on them, you start to learn the different populations that are going to benefit from you, manipulating, mobilizing, doing even deep tissue work, whatever, you know, it, it you gotta, you gotta trial it, you know, and get a little gutsy a little bit, uh, get out of your comfort zone uh, to be able to learn who and when uh, to put your hands on people. Um, but then also just taking a lot of courses and, and reading the research on, you know, the contraindications, the uh, indications, or even the precautions around manual therapy manipulation. You know, the risk is low, you know, of, of harming somebody, but still there, you know. I'm glad you said that the risk is low because I think that's something people often forget with manual therapies. You know, they say, well, you know, I've got a 60 year old patient or a 70 year old patient, so I shouldn't do any manual therapy with them. Or I've got a 75 year old in front of me. I'm not going to do any joint manipulation on them because they're too old or something. Mm -hmm. And I think that they forget. I mean, I'm a little outdated on the names and dates of studies but i can tell you that there were studies done um again i forget when this was and who did it but they did a study looking at the force it took to fracture a thoracic spine in a cadaver in cadavers who had osteoporosis and then they Mm -hmm. compared that to the force it took to manipulate the thoracic spine and i believe the force used in a thoracic manipulation was like five or six times lower so 500 600% lower than the force it took to actually fracture a spine in a cadaver so no muscle guarding no muscle tension whatever with osteoporosis now that still doesn't make me comfortable enough to go and manipulate someone with osteoporosis i see that as a contraindication however it is very reassuring to know that the force that you're putting through someone in one of those movements is significantly lower than what you would need to do a um, something harmful and something bad in most cases, if you're doing the techniques correctly. Yeah. And I, I think you can look at that all up and down the spine, you know, when it comes to even cervical manipulation, that there's a lot of, you know, there, there's still a lot of people that are very fearful of doing cervical manipulation 
manipulation. And there's a lot of research that, that shows the relative very low risk. You know, that doesn't mean that you still don't need to do your evaluation and, and asking the questions, you know, and do your due diligence. And there's still going to be some people that you're like, nope, I'm not going to put my hands on them or post whiplash, you know, being able to give, uh, give the due diligence of time prior to doing cervical manipulation, you know, on those people after motor vehicle accident or, or whiplash. But most of the time, then the thoracic spine is fair game, you know, during that time. And uh, we just know uh, when it comes to the, the, the thoracic spine, just how much mobility is needed for proper shoulder uh, elevation, um, you know, and they say, I can't remember exactly, 21 or 28%, I think 21% of cervical rotation, you know, happens in the thoracic spine, you know, so the necessity of thoracic mobility, even in those early motor vehicle accident people where their neck is really unhappy, you know, it can, it, it can help allow uh, that area break you know, by getting that thoracic spine moving a little bit better, probably even better than it was moving prior to the motor vehicle accident. Right, right. And this is not something that's just limited to us talking or you and I's clinical experience. There's a whole clinical prediction rule that backs this up. Like there's been a ton of research into the use of thoracic spine manipulation for neck pain and neck symptoms. And if I remember correctly, we'll test myself here. I think it's symptoms less than 30 days, no symptoms beyond the shoulder, um, low fear avoidance. I think it's like less than 15 or 13 or something like that. Um, limited extension range, thoracic kyphosis. And um, I I think it's like looking up or looking down doesn't irritate symptoms. Something like that. You can yeah. don't quote me directly on that. But basically, we know that there is a huge linkage between the neck and the thoracic spine. And I think that the thoracic spine should be a area of good mobility. However, it tends to be stuck and limited and doesn't move much. And the neck is an area of almost hypermobility in a lot of cases, and it lacks stability. So, you know, you look at those like deep cervical flexor tests and people just can't hold positions like a chin tuck. So we've kind of got a mismatch in we have an area with a lot of mobility that needs a lot more stability. And at the same time, we have an area with a ton of stability that needs more mobility. And we kind of yeah. just need to flip the switch on those. And I think that's an area where the manual therapy shines. Uh, one, as we've talked about the thoracic manipulation techniques and even CT junction techniques as well, because that area tends to get tight and it's very hard and difficult to target that area specifically with exercises. And, you know, manual therapy and joint manipulation, which is the fun showy stuff. I mean, joint, joint manipulation isn't the only manual therapy technique, I'll say. And you can actually do techniques for the neck to strengthen it with your hands on the patient and increase muscle activation. So you can kind of treat both of them at the same time. Yeah. And I, I think even taking a little bit of a step back from the strengthening, just looking at a lot of the postural uh, stuff around the thoracic spine and even into the, the lumbar spine first, thinking of the working from the bottom up, you know, your uh, neck is at the very end. So if you're going to try to do something at the neck without addressing everything from below, 
you know, the, the people who do the thoracic ring stuff, you know, your Diane Lee uh, talking about really the stacking of, of that rib cage. Um, the people who end up doing a lot of chin tucks or, you know, cueing for a lot of the chin retractions, you know, without addressing that thorax first, you know, the, and I, I always think of the people that are really kyphotic, the head goes down. So then you push the chin forward, you lengthen through that chest, you know, learn how to lift the sternum, relax the shoulders. Usually what's still lacking though, is the chin nod because the patient's vision now is north of that horizontal. Uh, so it's not like I don't even teach a chin tuck or a chin retraction. I teach of a gentle chin drop to get those eyes on that horizontal. And if it's really any more than that, it's an effort, you know, and posture shouldn't really be an effort. You know, it should be just a natural stacking and then supporting yourself when it comes to ergonomics around that relative ideal position. Um, and then strengthen from there. You know, but people need to be able to learn just how to be able to get there, period, with minimal effort. You know, um, you know, the, the people that slam their shoulder blades back all the time, you know, versus really getting this lengthening and and uh, floating of their, their ribs north. And then that chin naturally should want to drop if, uh, you know, if we're doing that bottom up. So, yeah, yeah I do a lot of that education well prior to doing you know, tons of the strengthening stuff, you know, that people need to understand how to normalize their day prior to going beyond that, you know, when it comes to your phase two, phase three of uh, strengthening, functional retraining and loading. Yeah, know. yeah, definitely. And I like the point on posture because, you know, say you get a patient and you spend 45 minutes to an hour with them in the clinic, one, two, maybe if you're lucky, three times a week. Well, that's one to three hours a week that you're actually seeing that person. And that's hundreds of hours every week that they have outside of your clinic. And yeah. unfortunately, you're not going to convince me that the stuff you do in the clinic is so good that in one hour a week, you can fix everything, including the positions that they spend eight, 10, 12 hours a day in. Yeah. while they're not in your clinic. And yeah. I like the point on tracing posture all the way back down to the lower back and pelvis, because the spine itself is kind of like a house. If you don't have a good foundation, everything else is going to get thrown off. So let's take something basic. I work with a lot of athletes and strength clients, and they love the overhead press. And I'm a huge fan of having the ability to press overhead. But I've mm -hmm. noticed a lot of people can't stabilize their core in that position. So now we get lumbar lordosis. And then from that lordotic position, we have compensations all the way up the spine that happens. The problem is we can't brace our core, but we see other impairments in the thoracic spine, in the neck position, in the shoulder, just because of one thing all the way down at the bottom. So I definitely agree in the approach of looking at the entire spine, looking at things through that regional interdependence light, instead of just looking, you know, neck pain, I'll just look at the neck. Yeah. Or even, I mean, you, you can even go way lower and the, the people that do say standing overhead press that lumbar lordosis, you know, ex excessiveness that they may have, you know, what are, what are their hips look like? You know, are these chronic stiff hips as well? They can even hip extend, 
you know, glute activate in those explosive uh, positions of, of overhead, you know, and their low back may be compensating into that lordosis because their hips can't extend, you know, if they sit all day at work. And if, uh, if you think of a lot of the people who are in the workplace, they're spending half their waking hours in one position, you know, so if you, if you address all these different stretches, all these different mobilizations, but you don't address what they are doing half their time when they're awake, you're going to fail, you know, over the long term. And I was just talking about this with my business partner earlier today when you were mentioning the, this podcast, uh, where he was saying how there's the research that says posture, you know, doesn't affect pain, you know, like doing postural reeducation, which I just think that's garbage research, you know, unfortunately, where it, that doesn't make sense, you know, sure, just maybe that alone, without actually fixing a lot of that, that patient's uh, positions, you know, not only do you need to know where to go and have some retraining, but then you need a workplace that accommodates it. You know, I could tell you all day long to lift that chest, relax your shoulders, drop the chin and all that. But if you're sitting at a countertop now at home, working from home, you know, with the laptop, you're going to fail, you know, so you, so I always tell people you need to mold yourself uh, it, you need to find a good position and then mold your environment around your ideal. You know, unfortunately, what we do a lot of times in, in our lives is we mold ourselves to our environment. And you can do that for a short amount of time. It's not about being perfect. It's about being ideal enough of the time to stay out of my office. You know, like that's the biggest thing. Like I'm, I talk to people about posture sitting on a stool. So the last thing I'm going to say is you need to be perfect. You know, but you just need to be good enough, enough of the time, and you need a body that's aware enough without just waiting until you hurt to make a corrective change. You know, you need to be able to retrain that body enough with thousands of repetitions so your body recognizes position, and it, which is proactive, instead of being reactive to, I wait for pain and now I move. And that's unfortunately where, where our healthcare is. Our healthcare is such where I have to have a problem before I get help, you know? So our minds are very reactive that way. So we need to be able to change the brain. And this goes into a lot of the chronic pain stuff, but be able to change the narrative, you know, that I need, I need to be doing things as, as a wellness, you know, and have a body that's aware enough to be able to say, yeah, I've been sitting here for a little bit. I need to move, you know, and, not wait until I hurt. Now I need to move, but now I'm in a pain cycle, you know, and that's where the fear comes in. Like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm afraid of sitting for 30 minutes because I'm going to hurt. Well, okay. Move at 15 minutes, you know, and start retraining that brain to recognize those positions. But yeah, yeah. I mean, that can be another discussion. I mean, I, I love the chronic pain stuff when it comes to, you know, changing the narrative. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, the way you laid that out, it almost makes a case for physical therapy almost entirely being a neurophysiological construct. So I know that there's a lot of people who will debate biomechanical effects versus neurophysiological. And I mean, taking concepts such as joint manipulation here, they've done x-rays on people and then they've done a joint manipulation and they do the x-ray again. And they can't tell the difference between pre-manipulation and post-manipulation. 
So it doesn't, to me anyways, doesn't seem like we're realigning bones and moving things around and magically shifting things into perfect, you know, place or alignment. I think it's mostly more of a neurophysiological reset to that joint. It's a quick stretch of the joint capsule into a new position. And that just kind of like your laptop, for example, you turn it off, turn it back on, reboot, and it runs a lot better. So you have to do that to a joint and all of a sudden we have a lot better movement. And, you know, even on the Therax or Theract or any kind of intervention side of things, you cannot convince me that something like, you know, banded no monies or scapper tracks with a red or green TheraBand, you cannot convince me that that is causing a muscular hypertrophy effect because that's nothing compared to what you see people doing in the gym, right? So I think it's all about the neurophysiological construct for most people, not always. Sometimes there's a biomechanical element, but I think you make a great case for the neurophysiological side of things. And I personally feel like that's kind of the way most manual therapy works. Yeah. And I, I think the research is starting to back that up more and more about the neurophysiological stuff. You know, we know it, it does provide a, uh, an endorphin release, you know, which can lessen pain. So you feel a little bit better. You're going to move a little bit better. You know, if it with less fear, you're going to start to move probably more normal. You know, if you end up controlling that pain a little bit better. Uh, and we know quick stretch, what it does to a lot of muscle activation kind of resets the system a little bit. Um, you know, a lot of our joint pain or our spat or like our kinked necks, you know, go along with a lot of spasm. You know, so we can do a manipulation that lessens some of that uh, pain improve some muscle activation and through there, allowing some relaxation maybe of some of that spasm, you know, it allows for better movement. You know, it, it typically will re-tighten up depending on your life or just depending on the overall irritability, but it gives us a window, you know, that can start to kind of reset the cycle a little bit better. As we're talking about neurophysiology and joint manipulation, manual therapy, all that, sort of thing. Uh, I know a lot of my patients always love hearing the pop or the crack that comes with a joint manipulation technique, or maybe sometimes you're not trying to do a manipulation and you're just, you know, doing PA glides on the thoracic spine, or you're just kind of distracting a hip like grade three, grade four. And sometimes things pop naturally. And I think that everyone just kind of like pauses for a second. Like, was that a good pop? Was that a bad pop? And a lot of the times the patients are like, oh my gosh, I feel amazing now. You did it. You did it. What exactly is that cavitation for people who don't know or who have a hard time explaining that to their patients? Yeah. And I, I've gone back and forth through my career of, of what I, uh, what I stayed about it. And we know that it's likely a, a release of gas you know, like a nitrogen gas release from the joint capsule that will refill in about, what, a 20-minute period of time or such. Um, but we can do it to really any uh, joint in the body, you know, any, um, any joint that we're able to distract or gap. And uh, I do find personally, I know the research is a little back and forth of do you need a cavitation or not. I find better success with it. You know, if I don't get it, I don't sound disappointed with the patient. 
you know, I still give them the positivity around what we're doing with uh, how we're going to, you know, help get that motion over time, uh, even if I don't get the cavitation. But if I get the cavitation, I do feel like I have better success. I don't know if that's in my head or if that's real. But I, I tell people, uh, you know, I can crack your knuckle, I can crack your spine. You know, it, it's not doing anything magical. Uh, I can typically do it, you know, even if you weren't having a pain in your neck or you weren't having a pain in, in your spine, I could still manipulate that spine, you know, but you have something that isn't moving well or doesn't appear to be moving well, you know, or you have a painful movement, uh, this manipulation potentially, you know, can help lessen some of the pain, improve some of your mobility and give us uh, just kind of open our eyes maybe into how we're going to move forward down the path towards recovery, depending on how you respond to this. Going back to that whole diagnostic part. So that's usually my education that, that I have with patients around manipulation that, that helps lessen their fear and anxiety around manipulation. Um, you know, and there are certain techniques that I may not do day one with them. And I'll go more towards some simple ones just to, uh, you know, just to lessen some of their anxiety around manipulation. And if they have a positive response with it, you know, I may do some others as we move forward, uh, you know, that that seem a little bit more scary to patients, but are just the same and, you know, low harm. Yeah, definitely, man. Definitely. When it comes to manipulation techniques, uh, you know, I know you have the thoracic manipulation tool. So mm -hmm. this is probably a little bit of a biased question, but do you have a favorite way to do a thoracic manipulation? Yeah. And I, I got trained using the pistol grip, you know, so the, the three finger, uh, one, and that's where the TMT uh, comes in just to, you know, I just have it here, just help support the fingers uh, with the manipulation. I find doing it in supine, I'm able to control the forces a little bit more than doing it in prone uh, with more of your kind of pushing through the spine technique. I think that that causes a lot more bowing. So your patients that may be a little bit stiffer or more your osteoporotic or osteopenia kind of patients. Um, I'm able to do a pretty low force um, joint mobilization manipulation in supine that isn't going to cause as much of that bowing, maybe a little bit more specific, even though the research doesn't necessarily say we have a lot of specificity. I do feel like I can hone in an area a little bit better in supine. So I do that one for my gapping technique of like upper and mid thoracic, uh, even down to low thoracic, I'll just flex the patient up a little bit more to, and then bring my body down over top to help get that lower thoracic spine. Uh, and then for CT junction, you know, sometimes I'll do it in sitting, prone, supine, all three. You know, there's so many different articulations in the thoracic spine with all the rib attachments. You know, I, I may hit all three and get success in all three positions, um, you know, depending on irritability, my ability to do it, the patient's fear or comfortability with, you know, each of those positions. Yeah, it's yeah. great to have ways of doing the exact same thing. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I do agree that I think 
people find ways that they get more comfortable doing and they find ways that are more successful to them. So I know for the thoracic spine, at least for myself, I'm not a big fan of, I call it like the scoop technique, I think it is, where you sit, the patient's sitting down and they're behind them. Um, And I've used towel rolls with it. I've used no towel rolls and I can usually get it to go. I just don't like how it feels. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm very similar to you. I'm a big fan of the supine positioning, but you know, you take, let's say, I think it's Newton's laws. Um, For every force, every action, there's that equal but opposite reaction, right? So if I'm pushing down or I'm pushing into something, then I'm going to get some kind of force back at me, right? So basically, I want to make sure my body is best prepared and equipped to handle the force that I'm putting out. So if I'm going to do that distraction technique, for example, and I pull someone back and I've got a towel roll sitting right on my sternum, um, I don't know if it's a legit thing or not, but I heard about it from one instructor that there was a case or two of someone, a PT, fracturing their xiphoid from the pulling back and the force that they had going into their sternum from that. Um, and I like the supine because you avoid that pressure, one, but two, with something like your tool, you can make it much more comfortable for your hand because... You know, hand therapy is a thing I think a lot of people forget about and your hands can get arthritic, your hands can wear down over time. And the less force we put into that and the more we have a nice little soft tool that can help us absorb some of that force, I think the better off we're going to be for the length of our careers, I'll say, because you don't just become a PT or a Cairo for a good time. You want to do it for a long time, too. Well, the the people that don't manipulate the thoracic spine in my uh, career of a lot of mentoring and, and teaching in university and taking students, the people that don't do it, they don't do it because they don't think it helps. They don't do it because it hurts, you know? So a lot of, uh, a lot of females, you know, uh, very mobile females and a lot of the PT, um, the, the, female PTs, you know, or ex-gymnasts and, you know, very, very mobile people. Um, the last thing that they want to do is, is slam a body down on their hands and, and it hurts. And a lot of them are pretty small. So being with a patient on their stomach and being able to get their body in a position to be able to do a prone technique and, and drive speed is really hard. Uh, so being able to uh, do it in supine, I think, gives people the best opportunity for success. And then being able to learn strategies for your body size. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to make it a little simpler on your body. You know, I, I actually roll the patient when I uh, do my supine technique, I roll the patient a little bit onto my thigh. And, and that helps allow me to be able to drive with my legs a little bit of speed. And then I've learned how to not put the entire body over top my hand, but manipulate more from an angle, you know, where I, I pull up a little bit with my hand as at the same time of pushing down and through, and I'm able to do it more at a diagonal so that, and I'm only five, seven. Uh, so being able to have those bigger patients that I just can't get up and over top, you know, I'm able to still have speed and power um, doing it that way. And those are just things I've learned over time to protect myself. 
Yeah, definitely. And I like that you can take a technique and adjust it to see what fits you. So I've even done it in the past where there's a patient, I'm a little taller than you, but there's a patient, I couldn't get my arm all the way around to do that technique, but I wanted to do it. So I flipped it and did my other arm underneath. So I wasn't mm -hmm. reaching over top. I just kind of went underneath from that side with the other hand on top and it worked well. And I've also had patients before where I wanted to do something manually to their mid back because they've said in the past it helped, but mm -hmm. I had concerns about, should I be the one putting pressure here? So I actually put them in that pistol position and I had that patient do a bridge. So they were kind okay. of controlling their own pressure into that position. And I had good results with that as well. Um, I'm curious though, I haven't actually played around with the thigh use in the uh, supine gapping technique. Would you mind explaining that a little bit more about how you bring your thigh into that position? Yeah, so if you scoot the patient all the way over to the edge of the table, like we should be anyways, when I go to then roll the person towards me to put my, uh, to put my hand underneath them and, and kind of find my position, prior to bringing them back over top my hand, I slightly side bend them towards me because if, if you think of that locking technique where you can do a side bend opposite of rotation, you know, to kind of help with the um, specificity lock in, in that thoracic spine by slightly side bending them, it brings part of them off that table. And I'm able to put that near shoulder and a little bit of their upper thorax onto my uh, front thigh. And then now, rather than me trying to uh, control their body with my upper hand or my upper arm, which is a lot of stress on my body, I'm able to just use moving my leg as a way to be maneuvering them around on that thigh. So it's, a, it's only a little bit of their body on my thigh, but it's enough to take the majority of the stresses off of me trying to control them in this slightly bent over position of my body, which isn't good on my back. And then, and then I'm bringing them up and over top and then I'm able to do that quick thrust. So it just helps me set up. Uh, it's just something I learned throughout the year and years and I teach it to students or anybody that, that I mentor in it. It definitely helps. Um, it, you feel more confident in doing it where you're just not so kind of finicky getting in through there and, and putting your body so much up and over top the patient, which is uncomfortable for the patient. The patient, you know, is wondering, do you know what the hell you're doing? You know? Um, yeah. I mean, it, it allows me to feel confident in what I'm doing and my results are better, the more confidence that, that I have in the technique that I'm doing, you know, yeah, and the reason, definitely. You know, and there's so much research around patient success is highest when they have confidence in the practitioner doing what the practitioner is doing. And that typically happens when the practitioner is confident in whatever procedure they're doing. So, yeah, find the ones that work for you that you feel like you're able to explain to patients well and that you're able to do without getting sweaty palms. Um and your patient success will go up no matter really how well you do that technique. If you have the confidence in doing it and the patient believes in, in what you're doing, you know, your success rate goes up. Yeah. hundred percent, man. I 
Completely agree. And I think confidence kind of comes with your ability to accurately diagnose and also accurately, or I'll say successfully, make changes happen quickly. And that's where manual therapy is so powerful because if you see someone who's bent over posture, looks something like this, and they reach up overhead and they get to about here. So if you can't see this, basically, I just slump forward and I just raised both arms to like 130, 140 degrees roughly. Well, if you see that, then that's pretty good green light, especially if everything else checks out, no red flags, all that, that thoracic mobility is probably going to help. So mm -hmm. be confident in what you see, be confident in your assessment, and then try it. And if you don't want to go right to the manipulation, start with mobilizations, or I'm also a big fan of Mulligan's mobilization with movement techniques. So try those and see what happens. Do 10 of them, do 20 of them, and just say, hey, you know, let's retest that. Do we get more motion now? Or do we notice anything different? How does it feel to you? What was the quality of movement like? And if that doesn't get one, your patient, but two, yourself bought in to, hey, I do this thing, things get better. I see improvement in five minutes, then I don't know what will. Yeah. And I, I, I agree. It goes back to evaluation. Mm -hmm. You know, I went through the NIAMT fellowship uh, years ago. And the one main thing that I really credit NIAMP for, for me was I learned how to evaluate somebody, you know, so I, I have a set plan when it goes to, when I go through my evaluation, uh, that I do with basically every single patient. I have a large amount of treatment possibilities though. Like I, I love Mulligan. I took tons of his courses early in my career. You know, I do Sarman stuff, uh, McKinsey stuff, you know, um, and I, I pick up things from so many different places. And over the years, just in seeing thousands of patients, you know, I use all my successes or my failures as um, my kind of, all right, I know typically people 45 year old males with this type of background, this type of occupation, maybe coming from this type of a community, you know, they do well with this type of a treatment plan, you know, and 45 year old males who have this type of a problem come from another type of community, you know, they, they typically do better with this type of a strategy, but I still evaluate people the same way because you need to be able to understand a certain path, be able to do a certain technique, whatever that technique is, be able to see the change and not just say, are you feeling better? Therefore you're done. You know, not using pain as ever a guide towards discharge, but being able to say, are you feeling a little bit better? And let's see then how it moves. I know with your shoulder impingement, you know, you had less shoulder elevation, you had stiffness in your thoracic spine, maybe poor neck stabilization, poor core mobility or stabilization through the pelvis and, and low back. So we took this path towards it. And at the end, you're feeling better, but make, you know, how have my things also changed? You know, if you're feeling better, but the things that I thought were a problem haven't changed, you know, are you only feeling better because you're just compensating a lot more and you, and that's why you don't hurt, you know, you ain't using it right, you know, or was I way off 
or did you just end a pain cycle? And I, I think too much in our profession of PT, but also healthcare as a whole, we use pain as a predictor towards success, which is ridiculous. You know, we know the majority of the time pain's going to come back no matter how good we are. You know, but does a person have the ability to know how to manage that for the long term in a very healthy way that decreases overall healthcare costs in the long run, you know, um, with less fear and more empowerment? And uh, so if they are feeling better, does it look better? And if so, great marriage, you know, like that's what you're really looking for. And then not only that, like when you're all the way done with somebody, I love staying in touch with them. You know, three months down the road, I like contact him just saying, hey, Bob, how you doing? You know, and if he says I'm doing well, OK, why do you think you're doing well? You know, and uh, oh, my knee is extending better still, you know, and I check it periodically. You know, my shoulder, oh, I can reach up to that highest, you know, amount. OK, how's your thoracic spine? Oh, I check that rotation. So being able to have certain checks to know how you're doing prior to pain starting you know like don't wait until pain to have a solution you know it, it goes back to that reactive versus proactive management you know and I, so i think for us if we're going to manipulate if we're going to mobilize we need to then reteach the tools for the patient to be able to understand uh for the long run how am i doing not only when i hurt but when i'm doing well you know, most people's pain, it comes on randomly, right? Like I, I been over and my back went out or I just woke up and my neck is stiff as a board. You know, they likely have had things coming on for a while and then just had a tipping point of that one day, you know, happening. The, the thought process of cumulative microtrauma that leads towards acute exacerbation. You know, so we can teach people how to be able to know what to look for to see how am I doing when I'm feeling well, you know, and not wait until they have that tipping point um, of now acute exacerbation. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree. I'm all for a more proactive model and I'm all for a model that teaches the patients to be independent and ultimately self-manage their condition. And I always tell people, you know, as much as I love seeing you, I don't really like seeing you in the PT clinic and I'd rather you get back to doing all the things that you want to do in your life instead of spending a few hours a week with me trying to get that ability back. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and if, if you, and I uh, love telling people, if you're really good at maintaining your community and checking in on that community, it's not only just great customer service, but it's an amazing learning tool for you. You know, if you if you knew at discharge, it seemed like I took this path and I had success. Well, how is it three months from now? You know, if a patient has increased pain again or worse pain than they even had before, you know, do they come back into your office or are they going to see somebody else? So you think you did amazing, but really that person's now on the operating table, you know, for for their problem. You know, so you need to be able to have that continual check on these patients just for your own learning to know, did that path and how I educated and what I mobilized or how I diagnosed and what I thought was going on, did it last over time? You know, we don't know that unless we keep in touch with these people and really maintain them as kind of clients for life. 
not necessarily all the time in the clinic, but, you know, having a community. 100%. I mean, people say, you know, hey, that's my doctor. That's my dentist. How come they haven't been saying that's my physical therapist yet? Right. Let's start working to change that. So, Brad, I think that's a great point to end on. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks or anything else you want to share with people listening today? And I, I'd say just, you know, can continue to evolve. And I've been in this profession for 17 years and I learn every day. You know, I, I learn from at least one patient every day. You know, I'm, I'm continually reading. I'm continually talking to people, you know, like yourself and um, learning from every encounter, every, every article, every uh, failure you know, and every success, you know, so I think as a profession, like, don't, don't just settle, you know, continue to evolve, uh, continue to look at every patient as somebody new, as somebody different, you know, treat everybody different. And um, it, it keeps our profession exciting and happy. So yeah, definitely. And I, I think the expression is, you know, a great ship is most comfortable when it's in harbor, but that's not what it's built for, right? You've got to go out there and explore and adventure and run into those, you know, difficult situations or the times when things get better and then they get worse. And ultimately, as long as you keep learning, you're going to become a better clinician. For people who want to find out more about you and for people who want to find out more about your thoracic manipulation tool, where can they find you at? Yeah, so the TMT, uh, if you were to search thoracic manipulation tool on Amazon, you'll, you'll find it on Amazon. Um, as, as far as myself, uh, I, I work, my main practice is reflex knee specialists. And if you were to go to www.reflexknees.com, you know, it's got my bio on there and uh, what we do, you know, at that clinic. Uh, anybody can always email me as well at uh, bradsimpsonpt at gmail.com and be happy to consult. I, I like going back and forth with clinicians or, you know, people have any questions about patients or, you know, wanting to get mentored a little bit. I'd be more than happy to be a resource. Awesome. We will link to all of that below in the description. So if you didn't quite catch it and you want to reach out to Brad or you want to order a TMT for yourself, you'll be able to just click there. Brad, really appreciate your time, man. Thanks for coming on. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening and I'll see you next time.